there. My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. In the hearts and heads of many anglers who live and fish to the north of the English Channel, there is often a feeling that the south course is where everything happens and that we up here are somehow missing out. Certainly over the years it has seen more than its fair share of good fish, often increasing in size and species variation the further west you go, particularly in the waters off the coast of South Devon and Cornwall. But unfortunately, that is no longer the case. You need only look at the records kept by the Mounts Bay Angling Society over the past 70 years and more to get a handle on the scope of that West Country change. So it's fitting that with me today, I have a man who since the 1960s has held pretty much every post within that organisation. Well-known Penzance sea angler, Sid Pender. The club was revamped in 1946. I didn't join the club as a junior. I joined the club when I came back from the cities in 1968. So I'm now at my 44 years. That's been everything from president, vice chairman, chairman, fish recorder, secretary. I kept clear treasurership and uh, boat secretary, you name it, I've done it. So uh, we're now in semi-retirement and sit back and let the younger generation, the 40 to 50 year olds. An amazingly long and very busy relationship with an organisation well steeped in corny sea angling history. We had our 50th anniversary in 1996 and I volunteered to do it having retired at the time. The first notification I had was going back through copies of the local newspaper. 1912, our first trophy was given by a former MP, Sir Clifford Corey, and uh, he laid the foundation stone to the Salvation Army Citadel in Penzance, so he's engraved in granite. And the trophy was first presented in 1912. The club then went in decline, mainly because of two world wars and space in between, and revamped in 1946 when a lot of keen youngsters came out of the army and our mackerel trophy, the Nichols Cup, was bought with Ken Nichols' demob money in 1946. And since 1946, we've gone from strength to strength. At our peak five years ago, we had a total membership of 112, say 60 juniors. Our junior strength has been always very good in the last 20 years, mainly due to the current junior leader. And our juniors hold more county records at CFSA and former NSA level than all the rest of the junior sections in the county put together. So is it a boat and shore club, or does it lean specifically towards shore angling? Boat and shore. There's always been a majority of shore anglers, obviously. And we, as boat anglers, we felt we'd been the poor relation because the shore anglers' trophy list is twice the length of the, uh, the boat owners' trophy list. But of course, um, fair enough, there's twice as many shore anglers as boat anglers. Boat hangers picked up recently mainly because we've gone from individual boat owners like myself, who could do quite well in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Now we've got three out of the six charter boats are skippered by club members, which is a good thing. But all the good quality fish now that are wading from the boat for the club are coming from the three charter boats. Credit where it's due, they're good skippers, but they're also good anglers. They don't take people out and just rake in the 36 quid at the end of the trip. Because quite often you can have a case where a skipper is a skipper, but he's not particularly interested in angling, he's only interested in the financial reward at the end. Does the fact then that the charter boats seem to be winning more of the trophies mean that decent fish these days are harder to find, or perhaps spread further afield? Possibly even a combination of the two. They're more difficult to find, and um, as I said to you, I was county boat champion for three years on the trot back in the 80s. 
on the best five species, which I could pick up within half a mile of the shore. Now, of course, inshore fishing has been decimated with inshore netting. So that your charter skippers, ours are very selective, they've got exact spots where to go, and um, all the technology available. And has the club ever had any household names on its membership list? Not that I can think of. No MPs, no lords and ladies. We might have had a, a lieutenant colonel as an honorary president at one time, but uh, from the top of my head, no. What about record holders? Record holders, um, our club's fish recorder, he updates them every year, and I keep my own copies. I've got oogles of records. We've got um, club, senior shows, senior boat, junior shows, junior boat, county juniors, 11 to 16, under 11, etc., etc., and with the help of the fish recorder, which I did myself years ago, I update them every 12 months. Actually, I was thinking more of national record holders. Yes, Shore Greater Weaver is a British record, but it's not a county record. <laughs> we have about seven or eight Cornish county records which exceed the current British record. Possibly the correct procedure wasn't followed to, to have it claimed, you know, for the British Record Royal Court Committee, or they just didn't bother. But the current British record for the Shore Court Brader Weaver, that's British record. Shore Court Megram, British record. Boat Court Garfish and Shore Court Garfish, Audrey Garfish, and the Short Beat Garfish, a friend of mine from Mosel, owns a British record for that one. He identified it, and it was first discovered in the Med by some Russian marine biologist, so it had a Russian name, and Chris was asked to give an English name, so he gave short beat garfish. I said it was short because it swam in the back of my little key just before you landed it. And there's 18 or 19 British records set from Cornish waters. We've taken a brief look here at the club's long-standing history, but what about your own personal history? Where and when did your interest in sea angling develop, and what path has it taken over time? I'm brought up in Mosel, Cornish fishing village, from a commercial fishing family. And from a young age, it's very interesting fish and fishing because it was a family background. And I was the first one in the family to try fishing rod and line, I think. You started off with a reel of cotton and a bent pin catching gobies and blennies from the local pool. I then had a first rod, if you call it, a bamboo, and a an older cousin lashed curtain rings on it for eyes. Then I had what was an ex-World War II tank aerial, but of course it rusted out and all, all the eyes fell off. Then we started off, and um, I'm a great believer in those days of centre pins, and I still, 50 years later, have two Alcock's airlight from the 1950s. So we started off because you were in a home environment, fish environment, and um, it grew from there. Lucky in as much as I had, um, other than the four years at college and teaching in Oxford, I was lucky that um, it was four years on the Sillies and the rest of my teaching career was in West Cornwall. So I had, I was able to continue with, with Garby. On the Sillies in particular, I could put, I could shoot crab pots and nets the night before and keep an eye on them from the staff room window. <laughs> Spoiled for anywhere else, obviously. I fished the Sillies myself as an occasional visitor, but as a resident, you will have seen it in a much different light. So how do you rate the fishing generally over there? Out of this world it used to be. I mean, I had it all to myself in the 60s, right? I had the whole coastline to explore. The charter boats and their new generation much speeder than they were in the 60s, and the same with your fishing fleet, your commercial fishing fleet, so that they can go further and quicker. But a lot of the city was, in the 60s, of course, untried ground. 
But what interested me was the fact that up to 1968, there were no recorded bass catches on the island. The um, game book on Tresco Abbey, or the Tresco Estate game book, uh, no bass mentioned has ever been caught from Salonia Water. I've heard that before, actually. Something to do with the way the Gulf Stream splits and skirts around the islands, leaving them surrounded in relatively cooler water. Yeah. So maybe that has something to do with it. But certainly, plenty of fish. We regularly caught loads of rass and pollock, plus in the evenings the odd place from the harbour wall. I also had a day out trawling with Dave Thompson aboard Swan Dancer and saw all sorts of species which rarely, if ever, seemed to show up on Robin Line. Quite a few John Dory, various rare species, blue whiting, and even several boarfish. Had put a lot of coldfish back in the 60s, 70s, till they started knitting their offshore wreck. Um, used to have a run of coldfish off the shore up to four pounds, when I think the specimen weight for shore coldfish was then five pounds. And we used to call them racers. All the same, like you think they'd been measured with the same ruler. And um, I had a lot of coldfish down in the Sillies in the 60s, and also down sending in the early 70s and um, quite a few were passed on to local crabbers or crab pot bait. And when I went to Senin, I had a boat in Mosul. So I gave the harbour master crab pot bait from October to March and then said, James, can I bring my punt around from Mosul? Yes, my son, he says, help yourself. So like me, the bulk of your offshore fishing is also done from your own boat. Yes, I've never ever been on a charter trip. I've always been my own skipper. And as I say, 12 foot, 16 and now 17. And when I went up from a 12 foot to a 16 foot when I finished work the second time, I retired completely in 1994. I'm treating myself to an ordinary long line or 16 foot. Somebody said, Sid, you'll catch twice as much fish in your 16 foot as you did in your 12 foot. I said, don't you believe it? And uh, it proved so since. So how would you categorise the bread and butter fishing you mainly do from your own boat then? In short species, I enjoyed going for flats rather than rounds, to be honest. Up to the mid-90s, I, without boasting, I could, I could manage 600 dabs a year. Back in the 70s, you had a good run of place. But unfortunately, inshore netting has decimated their stock. But um, I preferred flatties to rainfish. But as I say, dabs have gone by the board because your inshore boat, that is your under 10 metre fleet, Years ago, they were either mackerel or they were crabbing. Now they've got to diversify. Landlining for mackerel, crabbing, shooting nets, you name it. And what's decimated inshore fish stocks are gill net, small ones, two and a quarter mesh, shot for red mullet. And your red mullet in a net is going to be in a minority. I saw a youngster over Maudel four or five years ago. He shot two thousand metre net joined end to end, right? Two thousand metres. And he came alongside me later on and said, Sid, see what I've got. And on his engine box, he had half a dozen red mullet. One was well over two pounds, which would have done me as a county record on a rod and line. But the rest of the fish he had out of the five stone box, four and a half stone were rubbish fish, unfortunately. Mm. It's not what they land, it's what's jerked over the side. It's the same with your beam trawling, because of the quota systems are ridiculous. As you know, there are tons and tons of good fish being dumped on the bottom of the seabed. A lot of interest in that particular subject has recently come from TV chef Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, banging on about discards all the way to the EU Fisheries Minister in Brussels. The way the programme came across made it look as though quarters had nothing going for them at all, and the general public quickly swallowed the bait, 
which is all very well, so long as you can come up with a replacement system that doesn't encourage deliberate overcropping by allowing the commercials to bring everything ashore. Then it really would become a free-for-all. So while he makes a good point, he offers no viable alternatives in terms of real safeguards. If you go back to the 70s, they insisted on their own waters. They kicked us out. And I think I agree with the Icelanders for doing it. We should have kicked the French out years ago. The French, because of historical ties, can face between the 6 and 12. Everybody else has got to be outside the 12. Ours are being decimated. You get French pair trawlers off the back of, say, um, the Eddystone fishing for bass and scooping up tons. So we should have been stricter in the 70s in guarding our own fish stocks. Commercial fishing needs to look at itself. That's a sore point with me. So moving quickly on, I'm looking around your room here and everywhere there are trophies and awards for the fish you've caught, which reminds me that consistency such as this is a far better measure of angling ability than the odd very big fish here and there. So why not talk us through a few of those? Well, each replica means it was a trophy one. I've been picking them up since 68 and uh, all the replicas go up to 1995 and then as a club the replicas, the settle shoes became too expensive, they were five or a time. So we decided as a committee to present certificates instead of replicas. So I've run out of wall space <laughs> with the replicas, but I've now got all the certificates in folders in the cupboard. So yeah, fish-wise, um, quite a few county records at the time. I think I had, from my 12-foot dinghy, at the peak of it, we held 13 junior and senior county records, which is pretty good going. Any national records in there by any chance? No, that's my only disappointment. We've got British record holders in the club, but um, close to it last year, I had a fish which was only 154. Our club chairman, he had a 162 the same day. We weighed them in within 20 minutes of each other. His was a shore specimen from the lizard. Mine was between Mousel and Lamore out in the pond, and we each missed the British record by an inch. You haven't said what species it was. Golden grey, I think, or something. A golden grey mullet. Could have been, or because um, things like Twait Shad, they're now off the species list. You can't land those at all. So, um, yeah, an inch short on both of us. But that's the way the cookie crumbled. Indeed. Now, over your time fishing this corner of Cornwall, you must have seen many changes. Some may actually have been for the better, but I'll wager that a lot of them probably weren't. So what, for you, stands out as the main examples, either individually or as collective trends? The main change, of course, has been um, fewer traditional species being caught and, in some cases, unusual species have come into the reckoning. Boat catches of lean, cod, conger, they peaked in the 70s. They never ever get back to that level. And from the shore, there been a lot of decimation, especially with flatfish placing that. But on the other hand, you get odd sods turning up. I think we've got more odd species in Cornwall record list I think the only place might beat our county record list would be the Channel Isles, being that bit further south. But we've got um, odds and ends, like you might call semi-Mediterranean, like triggerfish. They even made an appearance over a period of time. At one time, all your mullet were just grey mullet. Now, of course, they're segregated into subspecies, your thick lip, your thin lip, and your golden grey. And same with wrasse. Wrasse were just wrasse, and now you've got balanced corkwings and cuckoos. 
So there's more specification, but generally a lot of the traditional species have declined, but um, other ones, new, newer species are coming in, especially from a shore fishing point of view. When we were chatting down at the harbour earlier, while you was getting in your daily dose of fishing, you mentioned the club having specimen targets for the year, but that due to the decimation of fish stocks locally, these have had to be revised down. When Newlyn Harbour was upgraded with a new middle pier put in, because they were dredging, in the January we had 44 specimen flounders over two pound weighed in in the one month. We then had to run a scout off the back of the pier and we had 106 specimen fish medals that year just for scad and flounders because of the dredging all the feed had come up through. As a club we average perhaps 26, 27 different species from the shore. Now we have the advantage of course at Cornwall but we've got nearly a 400 miles of coastline. Compare it with, with Deddon's the big, second biggest county after Yorkshire but you've only got the north and the south. You haven't got the bit that joins the two up. So as far as the county goes, we usually win the trophy from the affiliated clubs from most species boat and shore, and that would be perhaps in the early 40s. Our club youngsters from the shore, and we've got some very keen youngsters, 26, 27 species on the shore, the best fish list is not unusual. And there must be some parts of the British Isles where you wouldn't get 26 or 27. But having said that, you can only weigh in fish taken from Cornish waters. You can't go over Scilly <laughs> and weigh fish in on the mainland because Scilly's got his own authority. They've got their own fisheries committee. You couldn't go to Channel Islands on holiday and bring back something to weigh in. So although we've got 400 miles of coastline, we are specific county only when it comes to weighing them in. Might any of the changes, particularly in fish mix with new species coming in where more traditional species have perhaps been fished out, have anything to do with rising sea temperatures and the fact that Cornwall being so far south puts it right in the front line? It could be, yes. What I call your semi-Mediterranean species, especially things like triggerfish. I first met a triggerfish in 83, which is a very hot summer. Then 87 was a very hot summer and the triggerfish that I caught coincided with warmer than usual summers. I mean, you wouldn't have had to trigger fish this last summer because we didn't have a summer. No. So um, some species seem to be migrating further north. So if you read a book on the fishes of um, northwestern Europe, I've got one there from the 1926, second edition. Lovely book for illustration. And you read the distribution there. Now some which were only caught, say, in, in the Cornwall because we're farther south and, and west. Now some species will go up as far as Anglesey, perhaps, or go round as far as Scarborough. So there is a migration further north because of, I, well, I presume it is um, rising temperatures. But of course it depends on the feed, doesn't it? Where the feed will go, the fish will go. One of the most notable gains, particularly as we lost a very similar and equally highly prized species at pretty much the same time, has been the couch's bream, which to all intents and purposes has replaced our own traditional red bream. Well, the red bream, um, in the 60s, your inshore fishing boat had a new linen model, that is up to 20 footers. They would finish the mackerel season in, say, the end of September, and then they'd go fishing for bream, as long as the weather was quiet, October into November before the mountain harbour shut. And they'd go to a mark called the Runnelstone, which is between Port Curnow and Land's End. And they would 
use half a set of feathers. In those days, they would feather from up with a set of 20. Now, of course, they use something like 40. But they'd have a set of old feathers, say seven hooks or six or seven hooks, baited with mackerel bait and fish on the drop for bream. And they make a good landing. And unfortunately, a Scots trawler, it was either a mid-water trawler or it could have been a pair of trawlers, they hit a bycatch off the back of the Ronaldstone. They came in to land their mackerel and they said, we've got so many young thousand stone of a bycatch, we don't know what they are. And it turned out to be 6,000 stone of red bream, adult fish. Well, that was a breeding stock gone completely. I've had perhaps four adult bream in the last 20 years. Two reds and two black. Well, that would certainly help explain the sudden decline. Any chance of them ever coming back, do you think? We've had small black bream taking off local piers. Now, back in the 60s, when there were adult bream in deeper water, we used to catch a lot of immature bream in the, in the bay. And um, small red bream are called chads. And they go back to 1850 or so on with the, the Newland School of Artists and one of the famous oil paintings in Newland Boys in the Edwardian or Victorian Edwardian times, chatting. That's the subject for the, uh, one of the oil paintings. And we used to catch oogles of them. And you thought, of course, they would last forever, but uh, we should be more conscious of depleting stock in the 50s and 60s. Do you have any particular observations to make regarding changes in tackle and tactics over your time? Well, tackle is now um, as upmarket as you can be. I can remember as a youngster going to the local shop. We had a hardware store in Mosul and we also had a draper's. I could get hooks and leads in the hardware, but I had to go to the draper's, would you believe, for a yard of what was proper catgut. And now, of course, you've, got, you've had monofediment for the last 40, 50, 60 years. So, technology, yes. You've got better rods and reels, and when you've gone from old bamboos to solid, I've got a couple of solid fiberglass ones to carbon fiber, you name it. And uh, a lot of our shore anglers are of the, the must-have generation, whether it's a car or whether it's tackle. Something new comes out, they've got to have it. There's probably nothing wrong with the tackle they're using anyway, but they've got to be upmarket, and uh, I think it's always what's on both ends. If you haven't got the right bait on one end and a decent anchor on the other, you're wasting your time. And do you think that the design of terminal rigs has changed, other than in the quality of materials used, obviously? Or are they all just variations on patterns with a proven track record dating back to who knows when? I can guess I'm very traditionalist when it comes to tackle. There's oodles on the market, especially in the way of um, artificial lures and so on. And I prefer natural bait. Now, when I was on the studies back in the 60s, a friend of mine, he was running as news agent confectioner shop. His son had just left school and for the son's benefit he decided to sell fishing tackle as a side. So I agreed with him. He would order what he wanted. If I caught fish on them, he would reorder them. I'd say the return if I caught nothing, they went back. I remember catching a six pound ras on a chrome spoon, Colorado spoon I think it was, I looked a bit like a ladybird with a triple on the end. And I had a rat on the first drop and a decent park on the second drop. But normally I prefer mackerel bait. And as far as spinning in shore for mackerel, garfish and pollock, I much prefer mackerel strip to sandals. I mean, a sandal is a one-bite bait. It's the same as if you're fishing with prawns or shrimps for rats. One bite and it's gone. You catch much more on a mackerel strip, belly strip, than you can on a sandal. So my preference is mackerel bait wherever possible. 
And what about the tactics used these days? Back in the early 1970s, when I used to go wrecking out from Plymouth, the flying collar had just come onto the scene, armed with a red gill lure for pollock and coalfish. But nowadays it gets used for cod and bass, not to mention out over the banks with bait on the bottom for bass and turbot, or with the live sandy along the retrieve over reef marks for pollock. So while things in some areas have moved on, it's still the same basic trace that seems to be doing all the work here. Is it then tactical improvement, or might adaptation be a better definition? No, I think, as you say, it has improved over the years. I mean, if you go back to 6th watch leads, you know, with spikes on, looked like something out of a medieval dungeon or something. Things have definitely improved. And also, I'm a great believer in fishing as light as you can under the condition. So by your own admission, things, and tackle in particular, have come on in leaps and bounds. But paradoxically, you still like to fish a centre pin reel. For inshore, yes. I mean, if I'm fishing within half a mile of the shore on soft ground, it won't take me too long to get them up. But I have tried to centre pin at 135 foot and make fishing next to me with a multiplier. He's finishing down again before I get mine up. But um, it's what I've grown up with. You know, I've got used to it and my best count was 31 pound on a centre pin. So what do you do? You bring it up 20 turns, then you back wide, and then you bring it up a bit more, and uh, not a question of setting your drag and leaving it zip off. You know, you're in contact with the fish the whole time. Now surely, over such a lengthy angling career, there must have been a whole range of amusing, worrying, or even downright dangerous little anecdotes that you could tell. So would you like to share any of those with us here? Yeah, a former club member, he's, um, he's, I think he's 80 this year, and... Um, a poor boat angler because he got seasick. Anyway, I took him out. He was on Sending Beach with his wife and children. This was years ago. And I was only going out about 200 metres to tie up fast a crab pop marker boy and have a spot of fishing. So I said to Harry, do you want a trip? Yes, please. Well, we went but out more than 20 minutes and Harry began to change colour. Can you put me back on the beach? So I went in onto the beach instead of the breakwater of the harbour. And when he jumped out, his false teeth fell out. He lost bottom set, I think, in comparatively shallow water. Well, believe it or not, a few weeks later, I went in on a low spring tide and was digging ragworm and sand eels and lugworm, and I turned out a half, a, half a set of uh, dentures, which I promptly took down to Newland to find they weren't Harry's, and he'd had a new complete set of them on. Expensive day. It was. There seems to be a national trend these days of fish becoming less abundant and smaller year on year. There are occasional exceptions, but generally speaking, the line on the graph rarely ever seems to climb upwards. With that in mind, what do you think the future holds? Fishing, commercial and angling has become more specific. You don't weep tears over the species that have gone. I mean, commercial bows, they've now got to concentrate on what they can get. Like the tuna, you know, three cornish tuna boats going down the Bay of Biscay as tuna as an alternative fishery. But as far as the trawler fleet goes, the beamers, we've got, um, well, they've sold half this fleet, but the Stevenson family from Newlyn own the largest individual, you know, private fleet of beamers in the whole country. I mean, you've got as far as Fraserburgh, I mean, most of them are family owned. Years ago, Grimsby used to be company boats. Well, the, the privately owned Stevos in Newlyn now, they're all 60, 70, 80 footers. They're now crew before only, which surprised me. Because I thought health and safety, skipper's got to be in the wheelhouse, engineer's got to be down below, they've got to double up. So a crew of four, perhaps it might have been seven years ago, so the cut 
to the bone on the crew, but they have to be more specific on what the targeting species are going for. Anglers are more specific these days. You're not going to waste your time on something that you might get. But um, a lot of uh, the younger ones are keen enough to devote time, well, specimen hunters, if you like. One observation I've made on my patch is that fish which nobody wanted years ago are now, to a certain extent, becoming popular. Maybe popular isn't the right word. Tolerated is probably a better choice, as something is needed to fill the gaps left by more edible species. True. Have you noticed a similar change in attitudes down here? Now, with some of the uh, cookery programmes on telly, they're encouraging you to eat alternative species of fish. But what annoys me is you go into Tesco's, I had a look last week. Cornish pilchards are now traded as Cornish sardines, and it's done the industry a world of good by calling them sardines and tender pilchards. West Country sprouts, £3 a kilo. Cornish sardines, £3 a kilo. Fresh, quote, fresh, Shetland mackerel, £5 a kilo. Now, why in the hell import mackerel from Shetland a thousand miles away when you've got a fleet two miles away in Newland Harbour or St Ives? And then you'll find something there from Taiwan or a Jamaican species. Well, think of the mild, talk about a carbon footprint. One of the reasons for that, unfortunately, is that we currently have a shortage of traditional whitefish. Exactly. And it's not going to get any better. In fact, it's probably going to get decidedly worse. Now, the days are gone when your cordon place were the mainstay for your fish and chop trade, weren't they? Mm -hmm. I mean, dogfish now, under trade description, you can't sell dog as huss anymore, unless it is a proper bull huss, a big one. I mean, it was huss, it was flake, rock salmon... Nothing wrong with the dog, actually, they're quite nice eating, if they're skinned correctly. If you're not being a cartilaginous fish, you're not going to die of choking on a bone, are you? True, but not for me. So do you reckon that people of your generation, and following closely in your footsteps, my generation too, have already had the best of it, the likes of which will never be seen again? My time over again, I would become more specific. I would target A, B and C species. I wouldn't waste my time trying for something that uh, is long since gone. Those were the days, my friend, I think, is an apt comment. I think so. Having recorded so many of these interviews up and down the country, you begin to get a very accurate historical picture of what was as compared to what is now. And here in 2012, I think it's fair to say that the writing is most certainly on the wall, with similar trends in terms of decline and timing matching up all around the country. Mike Millman certainly thought we'd seen the best of it and said as much. Sea Angler editor Mel Rus made a similar observation, and now we look to have repeated the same train of thought here too. Whether or not Mount's Bay Sea Angling Society will still be here in another 60 years is anybody's guess. So in that sense, it's nice to have taken this snapshot of its long, distinguished history. My thanks then to its elder statesman Sid Pender for taking us on this particular trip down memory lane. <laughs> <laughs>